Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily French Show. I am your host, Nicholas Lorimer, today joined by Marius Roach. Marius, how are you doing? Oh, seems to be having a little bit of a connection problem there with Marius. But uh, we're also joined by Sora Gon. Sora, how are you? Yeah, fine. Lovely day outside. So, helps. So, I had an interesting weekend in that uh, someone broke into my house and I had to fend him off with a kettle. Um, and you can see said dent in the kettle where I <laughs> bashed the housebreaker with. So, that was quite an exciting thing to happen on the weekend. Although, an unfortunate reminder... South Africa's crime problem. Um, but anyway, no one was hurt, nothing was stolen, and the guy ran away, so I'm not particularly too disturbed by it. Uh, but let us get into the news of today. And the first one is um, some polling from the Social Research Foundation, which has found some very interesting things about who the most popular political leaders in South Africa are. So they uh, asked questions about a whole bunch of political leaders. Um, one of them is that uh, 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 Tabo Mbeki came out as the most popular political leader in the country. Now, he's not in in a political position at the moment, right? He's just like a sort of ex-president. Um, but he has actually passed Ramaphosa in terms of favorability score. So respondents were asked from sort of 1 to 100 what to give um, various leaders around the country. And this was also broken down by racial group as well. So Mbeki scored 57.5% out of a 57.5% uh, um, amongst black South Africans. He got about a 60% uh, favorability rating, 45% from white South Africans, 53% from colored South Africans, and 54% from Indian South Africans. Uh, he's also more popular than Cyril Ramaphosa, who in the same survey was found to only have a 44.4% favorability rating. So that puts Mbeki well ahead of Cyril, who is in second place. Now, there was a time when Cyril had approval ratings of over sort of 65% um, in the country. Uh, and it's interesting to see how massively that's fallen. Um, amongst racial groups, Cyril Ramaphosa's uh, favorability rating was 50% from black South Africans, 18% from colored South Africans, 39% from Indian South Africans, and 29% from white South Africans. Um, unsurprisingly, Jacob Zuma was very unpopular. Um, he received only a 29% approval rating overall, 32% from black South Africans, um, colored South Africans, put him at 2%, Indians at 15 and none of the respondents, white respondents to the survey, gave him any approval whatsoever. He got zero from them, which is uh, quite amusing. In fact, even amongst ANC supporters, Zuma's score was pretty low at only 35%. Um, uh, Robert Bozo's deputy, uh, the deputy president, Paul Machetile, uh, is less recognized amongst people, so he has a pretty uh, sort of a bit of a lower, uh, a lower rating, but... Um, he only scored sort of 13% overall, but that's mostly because just people don't even know who he is, actually. Um, some interesting things about the DA. Uh, Helen Zillard, despite not being the leader of the party anymore, remains the most popular DA politician. She has about a 30% approval rating, uh, including a 20% approval rating from black South Africans um, and a 69% approval from white South Africans. John Steenhazen um, uh, scored much less than her, 90% approval rating overall and about 8% amongst black South Africans. Um, Julius Malema came in at about 30%, so he's actually less popularly viewed amongst the South African population than Helen Zilla, um, but only by a very small amount. 
um, with about 32% support among black respondents, uh, and then uh, quite low numbers amongst other racial groups. So there's, I can, there's other details I can go into, but uh, let's start off, I think, uh, Marius, with the very first one, which is Tabon Becky's um, approval rating beating out Ramaphosa. I think we can think of this for a lot of reasons, and Becky's been in the news a lot. He's sort of been criticizing problems with the ANC, but um, my thought, and uh, uh, tell me if you agree with me, is that this is a lot of people looking back on the Mbeki years and saying, you know, it had its problems, but man, it was better than Cyril. What do you think? I think uh, that's exactly it. Uh, South African economy was booed. Mbeki was president. We were growing at 5% a year economically, which, you know, we're not even close to that now. We can get 5% economic growth. But this is also the nature of nostalgia. Uh, people only remember good. Uh, nobody remembers the fact that uh, Thabo Mbeki didn't allow government hospitals to give people ARVs, which led to, you know, it's probably not an exaggeration, so that led to deaths of, you know, easily 100,000 South Africans, if not more. Uh, a lot of the problems are because of Thabo Mbeki and uh, supporting Zanu PF and Rob Mugabe. You know, if uh, in that 2008 election, which Zanu PF clearly lost, <clears throat> if South Africa hadn't backed Zanu PF and Mugabe, there probably wouldn't have been a change in government there. And it's, that's all kinds of knock-on effects for the rest of um, the region as well. You've seen a lot of Zimbabwean come to South Africa, and that's caused all kinds of tensions in South Africa because there's a perception, whether it's true or not, that foreigners are taking people's jobs. And we've seen, you know, terrible uh, scenes, you know, these uh, anti-foreigner problems. And obviously, it's not just uh, from uh, through Mbeki's support of Mugabe. Uh, people get attacked from who are all, from all over the country of Zimbabwe. It's part of it. Uh, and if Zimbabwe was more stable and uh, ran better, we'd, you know, people, uh, there wouldn't have been such a big exodus from Zimbabwe, obviously not just to this country, but uh, all, all around the world. So uh, I think people are looking back on that era with uh, really rose-tinted glasses. But as I say, that's the nature of nostalgia. And just on the Ramaphosa, having a 44% approval rating, whatever it is, most politicians around the world would take that in a heartbeat, actually, especially considering, you know, a year before an election, uh, you know, six months or six months to a year to go before an election. I think Joe Biden's approval rating twenty odd percent or something, and the American economy is booming. They basically have full uh, employment. Joe Biden's is, I think, forty one or something like that. Yeah. So, but it's, it's, I think what I read was it's the lowest at the same uh, point of his presidency for any president since the end of World War II. Put in power. So. Uh, just shows that Joe Biden's also pretty, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, popular. But he's still about pretty much as popular as uh, Sir Ramaphosa, who's, you know, Biden has. I think he's probably still running the US, but better than uh, Sir Ramaphosa and the ANC is running South Africa. So, but uh, I think just also the, one of the most uh, interesting findings was that Zoom is more popular amongst EFFs, which I think is quite telling as well. No, that is very interesting. I mean, uh, so amongst ANC supporters, Zuma only uh, got 35% favorability. But amongst EFF supporters, he got 48%. Um, so I think that's definitely because the EFF is sort of warmed to him after supposedly being the great anti-Zuma force during the Zuma years. They've now completely done a three, sorry, a 180 on that one. Um, uh, Sarah, what do, you, what do you make of all this? I mean, firstly, there's the fact that Cyril's favorability has plummeted from the sort of mid to high 60s that he used to sit in. But also this enduring popularity of Helen Zilla. I mean, when you kind of look at the sort of cliches about South Africa's 
politics. You'd never think that Helen Silla would be, you know, as popular, but very slightly more popular than Julius Malema. And yet uh, that is what the data shows. You know, I'm actually not surprised. Um, I, I, I think she, she, Helen was, was popular in, in a way that a whole lot of other politicians just have never matched. She was seen as a straight shooter. I think she was seen, she wore her heart on her sleeve, but she was very specific about her responses to things. Um, she, in, in, in that sense, she was a very much a politician, but not a politician at the same time. She, you know, her, her ability to empathize was right out there. And I think it made a huge amount of difference. And I mean, she only had to slink into the shadows after that sort of plot to oust her because of her comments on colonialism. But I'll give you an, an, an anecdote. And I think this is, probably a, a reflection. I had a, a, a child working for me, um, middle-aged man, black man, gay, illiterate. Um, so he relied entirely on radio and television for his information. He loved her. He, he loved her because he, he felt that she was someone who could give as good as she got and that she was being honest and that, you know, that she was a safe pair of hands. And that was very, very attractive. And I, I, I think the one thing she didn't have was that sort of, sort of veneer of slight sliminess that a lot of politicians have. And Becky had it. Um, Cyril is so early he could just slide off the table. Um, and 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 likewise even Julius Malema. But she she was like she if 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 you need if she came to your aid, you would get aid. You know what I mean? She had that sort of appeal. So I'm not entirely surprised about her at all. Um, with Cyril, there's no doubt, again, the sort of grapevine, you, you hear people muttering more about how much Cyril has let them down than one heard two two years ago, three years ago, yeah. certainly. And I think it's it, there's a hurt in 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 the feelings towards what Cyril has it's more more not done for people than has done. It's that sense of being abandoned, my my interpretation of it. No, I think that's about right. I think uh, you, you, to stretch your sort of oil metaphor, your oil, your oil description there, that uh, Cyril at first looked like to many South Africans, it's this kind of gleaming, shining, golden thing. He was, you know, a former businessman. He was practical. He was, you know, ready to reform things. He was the anti uh, the anti Zuma. These are all the things his his campaign was very good at solidifying in the minds of South Africans. And I think many media commentators went along with it until he got into power when everyone realised that it wasn't sort of a golden shine, but it was more kind of a olive oily slick <laughs> and that he was not uh, quite the reformer that he planned to be. But, you know, on that point, it, he was popular because people thought he would change things. And this is, a, a, a I think, a fundamental thing about the South African electorate is, you, you know, uh, the IRR has done our own polling recently. Um, and we found that South Africans are not particularly happy with a lot of the ANC's kind of ideological priors. Uh, they believe that people of all races should work together. They believe that merit is important, particularly in things like educational sport. Um, they believe that education and jobs are like key priorities that people that that government should focus on, not the things that the ANC really has its heart in. Things like be things like expropriation without compensation. Um, interesting here that uh, Paul Mashatile though is so sort of unpopular, not really that well-known, um, not a great... If he's going to be the guy who takes over the ANC from, from Pausa, uh, he's starting 
you know, from a position behind Steenhazer. Mm-hmm. What do you make of this, um, uh, Morris? Uh, look, um, <clears throat> he's still got a way to go, uh, but it's also not impossible that uh, he, Stamaposa, is going to be the last ANC. So it's uh, might be yeah, Paul Mashtila might not get this much name that much name recognition because you're not going to be in charge of South Africa at all. We can uh, hold hold time slots. So yeah, but it's obviously not a uh, good start for him. But he has been pretty prominent since he became uh, um, uh, deputy leader of the ANC. It does seem he does have a uh, quite a media team behind him. But that said, there's also been quite a lot of uh, stuff, especially from Media Twenty Four coming out about uh, Paul Mashtile and the kind of links he has with uh, and I don't think that is all completely organic. I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if there's at least some, if it's directed to some degree, which is, I mean, that's not, <coughs> politicians around the world use the media to their own ends. So yeah, but also as Oscar Wilde said, the only thing worse than being spoken about is not being spoken about. So even if uh, Paul Mashtile's names in the headlines for bad things, if his name's there, people start seeing it, and you know they see him and see people pathetic. They see well if he's high up in the ANC, he's probably such a bad guy. So maybe it's also not too bad for him. And then sorry, just to change the subject quick. Uh, Andrew McFarlane in the comments asked me who my predictions are for the World Cup semi-finals on Wednesday and Thursday, and I'm not going to have any. I'm just going to let let fate decide that. I'm not. Yeah, I'm too. Uh, yeah, I don't even get my hopes up about South Africa playing on Thursday. So. Man, wouldn't it be nice if we also won the cricket along with the rugby? Uh, anyway, let us go on to our next topic, and that is that the Department of Home Affairs is considering overhauling our immigration, refugee, and citizenship legislation. Uh, so the Department of Home Affairs has said that government needs to review the international treaty concerning refugee protection, saying that it was a mistake not to have curtailed the socioeconomic rights extended to asylum seekers. Uh, this is, uh, the department has proposed this sort of major overhaul. Um, they pointed to examples of other countries where refugees have uh, limited rights as compared to sort of immigrants or or, uh, or, or citizens. Um, so a refugee is different from an immigrant and a citizen. Immigrant is someone who moves to the country for whatever reason, and whether they're legal or illegal, they're, they're kind of, uh, presumably to work or that sort of thing. A refugee is someone who goes and applies specifically for asylum in the country they're going into and they say, uh, sort of, I'm fleeing from my country for whatever reason, usually some kind of political or violence reason. Um, those, are, those are supposed to be the only real reasons that refugees are accepted. Uh, and then they're given shelter in a country. Uh, the idea is that it's a sort of temporary thing. Um, they pointed to Angola and Uganda who restrict the movements of refugees and limit their abilities to sort of participate in the econ- uh, economy. Um, Zambia um, uh, prevents refugees from going into the same schools as, as uh, uh, the, the rest of the population. Um, and Aaron Mozzarelli said that uh, the refugee treaty, the government did not make reservations and exceptions permitted in terms of international law. This was a serious mistake on the part of government. They also have talked about the need to overhaul all of the immigration legislation, saying, quote, there is urgent need to completely overhaul the three pieces of legislation 
um, to meet new challenges facing SA and introduce single legislation dealing with citizenship, immigration, and refugee protection. The decision-making process in respect of refugees and immigration should be reviewed, including bodies and officials close uh, with the powers to take decisions in respect of refugee protection and immigration. And apparently there was a uh, resolution at the ANC conference a year ago um, that said that there should be a refugee office at every border post to deal with this problem. Um, so it's not entirely clear how many refugees there are in the country. It's, I, I've seen numbers between about 50,000 and 100,000. So it's not an enormous and almost number. It's not nearly as high as, for example, the number of illegal immigrants we have or legal immigrants we have. Um, but it's still, you know, a significant number of people. Uh, Sarah, what do you make of this? My, my fear is that this is kind of all a sort of political posturing. And what I mean by that is, you know, regardless of whether you think we should have more or less immigrations, you know, more refugees or fewer refugees, whatever, it's kind of just playing games with the legislation because the reality is the systems to actually enforce these laws, to actually have a proper immigration policy, things like home affairs, things like the border, um, they're so weak that it doesn't matter what government's policy is, people are just probably going to do what they want and there are going to be a lot of bribes paid to get around any laws that do exist. I don't know. What do you make of this? Well, I think it's a perfect example of um, a strategy that the ANC has ruled by, and that is when in doubt, pass a piece of legislation um, for exactly those reasons. The, the legislation makes no difference one way or the other. What makes a difference is the ability to enforce it. And this is not an area that's subject to enforcement. I mean, as you say, it's, 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 it's ripe for corruption. Um, even 100,000 refugees is not a lot of people. It's not refugees they, they're dealing with. It's a perception of what non-South Africans are or not, are not doing in the country. And, you know, it's sort of given rise to the, the xenophobia that has given rise to um, organizations that feed off, you know, uh, that feed off this negativity, the, taking our jobs, taking our spas shops, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, you know, if they want to change legislation about relating to immigrants, then or certainly just visas for people to come in and work here, um, we'd be cooking with gas from an economic point of view. But to deal with refugees, i.e. the people who actually apply for refugee status, which I imagine is probably one-fifth as many as there are refugees, never mind immigrants, it's it's it's... I mean, we're talking about a department whose computer system works apparently sixty times slower than the average banking than the average bank. I mean, yeah, okay, you know, let's give credit to the banks where credit is due, but it it is it it's a, it's a ploy. It, 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 in effect, it's a ploy. It, it doesn't. It, those are not the problems that stretch our public services, irrespective of whether you think refugees should have them or shouldn't have them. Our problems are the problems that they're trying to convince the electorate of affect many more people than those with, with official refugee status. Um, uh, no, it, it, it's, I don't hold much in it. Uh, it it's, it's like, you know, access to water rights, EWC, those sorts of things. It's, it's, it's pre-election populism. So, you know, just to kind of illustrate how popular this point is, um, 
the IRAST unfolding recently, and people were asked, which of the following comes closest to your views on the impact of illegal immigration on South Africa's unemployment number? And there were a number of options. Um, illegal immigration is almost entirely to blame for our unemployment problem, or illegal immigration is a large contributor to our unemployment problem. Those two answers together got about 70% of respondents' approval, uh, agreeing with those statements. Um, so clearly, there's a very strong perception out there, and I've heard that there's other, other pieces of data, not just from our polling, that supports this idea that many South Africans believe that at least to a significant degree, unemployment has been caused by foreigners. Now, Marius, I mean, you know, there are definite, there's definitely increased competition for jobs between South Africans and, and foreigners and stuff, but the problem is not that the foreigners are taking all of our jobs, it's just that there's so few jobs to begin with. It's kind of missing the point, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's also <clears throat> perceptions because there's so many unemployed people and not I'm sure unemployment rates are high amongst the migrants and the refugees and so on as well. But <clears throat> I think this is um, uh, this is going to be a big issue leading into the election next year. I think it's actually going to be one of the main issues that uh, uh, parties campaign on. We've already seen uh, parties like the PA and Action and Action SA already make the issue of foreigners. You know that's kind of thing they're basing their party identity on to a large degree. And you're seeing a lot of stuff come out from the ANC itself, even the EFF with its flip flopping. I mean. One minute, it, uh, it'll tell you that, uh, you know, uh, South Africa belongs to the whole of Africa. And then, you know, two days later, Julius Malema will tell you that, obviously, if you're in Durban, you can't have a party working there. Only Zulu should be working in Durban, which is something he actually said, by the way. So, uh, you know, and so Africa belongs to everybody, but the country doesn't belong to everybody who lives in it. You know, it's the very, you know, yeah, that doesn't really make much sense. But this all comes back to, uh, you know, the, the core issue is because of the economic issues in South Africa. If we were growing at five, six percent a year and we had unemployment of 10 percent or 15 percent, which, you know, by global standards, is still pretty high. But for South Africa, that'd be, you know, <laughs> be amazing. Uh, we, I'm sure there would still be some anti-foreigner sentiments, but definitely not uh, the levels we see now. And it's mm -hmm. definitely something to be concerned of. And but that and this all comes down to the government just not managing its, uh, you know, the, the country properly. We've had basically a border that doesn't exist. And, you know, migration isn't. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, you can't just have uncontrolled migration. You need migration. It's got to be people with skills and so on who can contribute. I'm sure that's most people who do want to come to South Africa. But, uh, you know, we've, you know, uncontrolled migration is not always a good thing. And it does lead to tensions within uh, communities, which we do see in South Africa. So, and this all comes down to, as I say, the government simply not uh, running things properly, which, yeah, we, we've known that's been the case for a while now. Sarah, <clears throat> what do you make of all this? It, it's very interesting that um, you know, the real causes of unemployment, which are things like the labor legislation, things like uh, uh, BEE, things like um, you know, high taxes, overregulation, all those things um, have kind of managed to slip through the cracks of the public imagination and instead the focus has been poured on foreigners um, for causing unemployment. Well, well foreigners are a, are a favorite scapegoat since time immemorial, um, and I had to smile at what um, at what Mario said about you know it's just that the ANC is not running the country properly. It's like okay, yeah, they're just not running the they are not running the country properly. There is probably a, not a policy that helps us grow our economy, um, and being strict on 
asylum seekers or whatever they want to call them. Um, you didn't get to create jobs. Um, it does help if you don't make it hugely impossible for a CEO of a foreign company. It's fine for him to come and do the work, but you, he, his family can't get visas to come and join it. You know, I mean, the, the, the depth of South African policy unmaking, I don't even know what the right word for it is. Um, you know, this it's, it's, it is actually typical scapegoating. Typical yeah. scapegoat. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's move on to our last topic. And this is kind of a weird one, um, but we'll see how we kind of go with this one. So there's this increasing phenomenon in our sort of media environment where everyone feels like they need to comment on everything all the time. Uh, and this is particularly common amongst sort of many NGOs. Um, and, uh, and and sort of media personalities and stuff like that, even if it has nothing kind of to do with them. And the example here is there was a, a there's an NGO in South Africa um, which uh, released this very sort of aggressive statement about the Israel-Palestine issue, saying that uh, Israel is committing ethnic cleansing and lots of other, other very uh, strong claims, calling for. Uh, boycotting Israel and all sorts of stuff like that. And you think, okay, well, you know, someone put out a statement, who cares? Well, the weird thing was that this NGO has a pretty limited focus. They're not like the IRR, which is a more sort of general NGO with a focus on, on racial legislation. They're a uh, mostly foreign-funded NGO, My Vote Counts, which is focused on sort of like electoral reform, making sure that uh, political party funding is transparent, that people have ballot access, that people... Um, I'll get registered to vote, that kind of stuff. And so this is kind of a little bit out there wheelhouse. And this is not an isolated phenomenon. You can kind of, there's so many NGOs around the country where you can look and they say, um, you know, it's like, it's, it's about providing water to some rural community in the Eastern Cape and they'll put out a statement on this issue. Um, uh, you know, and I went, lest, lest I'd be the, the pot calling the kettle black, I went to look back at the IRR's own media statements on this. And I believe we only put out a media statement on this issue when um, government had made a statement and we talked about what government had said and criticized them as through the lens of how this would affect South Africa specifically. We didn't, you know, prescribe how the, you know, conflict should be solved or anything like that. So, sorry, let me start with you. I mean, why is it that we're seeing sort of what are supposed to be sort of quite narrowly focused NGOs or kind of nonpartisan NGOs wading into this hugely emotive fiery uh, 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 issue mm. i think it's because well it is all those things that you say it is i mean it, it's it, it's in a it's an issue unlike any other issue and certainly right now i mean it's a global you know it, it gets global responses um it also it seems from this one it may very well have been the emotions of the senior person in charge of it dictating the response um but it's as you say, it's not. I mean, everyone's got a view one way or the other. I mean, I think there'd be very few people who don't have a view one way or the other. But this is one where you're just expressing an, a very emotional view on something that, as you say, offers neither solutions to the Israel Palestine conflict nor to anything in South Africa. Um, it, it, it does none of that. And if you'll re our remit is we can say anything we like as long as it's based on classically liberal principles, which is a great brief because you can go, you know, whichever way you want. But if your my vote counts, 
we, you know, that, that we're doing a, a similar thing, and that's just a subunit of what of what we do. And they are, I suppose, the, the left wing organisation is suggested by the, the people who fund them: Open Society Foundation, Wraith Foundation, um, all the sort of traditional sort of left wing uh, funders, which is absolutely right. And what worries me about that is the ANC is looking for an excuse to beef up um, spy legislation, let's call it that security, you know. One of the things I want to do, which is of concern, irrespective of where you are on the spectrum of left to right in this country, they, they put, they've put in a clause in their draft legislation that gives them the right to vet in people employed by um, security companies, NGOs, and churches. Now, it doesn't, as I say, it doesn't matter where you come from on the spectrum, but saying those things, you, you know, it's inviting the government, because the government, you know, is by all, you know, well, from what we know, would agree with those sentiments. But it's inviting the government, if, 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 the, if they, to, to, sorry, it's inviting the government to respond to something they don't like through legislation like this if they get to pass it. And no, I must that's our concern because the chances are us, you know, if one of us says yay to the one side, somebody else will write the opposite. That's, that's, um, that's our brief. That's not their brief. Uh, as a, as an employee of an NGO, I don't really look forward to the prospect of being vetted by some government bureaucrat. <laughs> um, Morris, uh, your thoughts on this? I think it's probably comes from, I don't know how you want to describe that kind of spectrum at woke people or the progressive left <clears throat> for they'll tell you that for example silence is violence so if you're not saying anything about this whole issue you're not caring about what's happening in gaza but uh i don't think they said anything about uh, uh the mass attack on israeli civilians so i don't know if that means that they were you know, tacitly uh, supporting what uh, hamas did to uh, the israeli civilians who you know aren't, aren't representatives of the israeli state the israeli military and they were still attacked so, um, but yeah, I think uh, people, uh, I, th I think it's when you, uh, like, you know, a restaurant, uh, if a restaurant has got too much stuff on its menu, you know, it's probably not that good. Uh, but I think when a restaurant is focusing on just a couple of things, then, you know, they can probably do that pretty well. And I think, yeah, uh, and also it's, uh, uh, it's the kind of um, cognitive dissonance of people on the, as I say, the progressive left or wokes or whatever you want to call it, you know, they'll tell you silence is violence, but at the same time, they'll tell you to stay in your lane when uh, they don't want you to comment on a certain matter. So you can never really win with these people. But yeah, my vote counts. I mean, it's, yeah, the, I mean, they must do what they must do. But they've done some work on, they've done some pretty good work on electoral reform in that. And this, yeah, you just got to ask yourself, why, why are they getting waiting for this? Which is, you know, a very complex issue. And, you know, I think both sides have valid points about what's happening there. But it's complex. And I, don't, I think if you're not an expert in that area, then you, obviously, you can have your opinion. Nobody's saying you should have an opinion. But it's not, uh, uh, doesn't mean that everybody needs to hear your opinion, especially if you're an organization called My Vote Counts, which obviously has got nothing to do with what's happening in the Middle East. Yeah. Okay, that is the time we have for today. We hope you found the show interesting, and we will be back tomorrow with the Daily Fred Show. Have a great one, everyone, and see you tomorrow.